your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. Now it is indeed time for our chat and delighted to welcome to the studio Richard Gavin of Brown's Brasserie and Brown Thomas in Limerick and the Spit Jack as well, Anna Gibson Steele, who you'll know from the Holistic Centre of Excellence, regular contributor here on the show. And uh, we also have on our WhatsApp line, uh, Michael Fanukin, former Limerick TD. And you're all very welcome. Good morning to you. So let's start with um, this uh, citizens' assembly on drugs. And the Taoiseach is saying that he will give careful consideration to reforming the state's drug laws, to any recommendations to reform these laws. Um, and to some degree, it's kind of been handed over to the politicians a view that decriminalisation may well be the way to go with certain categories of uh, drugs. Um, and what do you make of that, Anna? Well, first of all, I think if we look at the bigger picture, you know, we use laws to shape social behaviour. So we've drink driving laws to stop people drinking and driving the car. So while I don't agree, there's no business putting addicts into prison. Clearly that doesn't work. You know, common sense would tell us that doesn't work. But if laws act as a deterrent, then if we decriminalise drugs... Are we not opening the door? You know, it may not, it won't certainly, you know, I think the guards use their their discretion and their common sense when they meet people who are very active in addiction. But it may well deter a 15-year-old from walking down the road if they're afraid of getting arrested. So absolutely do not decriminalise it as far as, I've seen the devastation in my work, you know, I've worked in the centres. I have families coming to me that are decimated because of drugs. I would have, you know, I think the only way we do it is zero tolerance and go after the dealers. Yeah, yeah. Michael Finucane, what do you think? Well, I think, first of all, actually, it's a very interesting report, and I think the Citizens' Assembly do good work. It's interesting, actually, by majority one, actually, they were in favour of decriminalisation with regards to personal individuals who were involved in uh, in drugs. And uh, like the legislation, this goes back to 1970 with the Misuse of, Misuse of Drugs Act. So it's timely to look at it and look at it with regards to what legislation should be put in place. Now, I recognise I recognize the concerns expressed earlier on, but I, I do think that um, it, the, the whole situation is timely and there is a problem out there. And as you know yourself, you're reading the paper from time to time where a person has been caught by the Gardaí with cannabis and they say it was for their own personal use. It possibly was. And in a case like that, I, I think the whole issue has to be looked at. I, I, I would welcome legislation. And I know there is concern with regards to uh, maybe a change in the present strategy and approach on the basis it may open up uh, the whole situation. But I, I do believe it's timely to have a look at the whole situation. And I think the Citizens' Assembly have to be complimented. And as you know, they were under the, the chairman was Paul Reid, XHSE Chief Executive. So I, I, I'd be interested to see what legislation comes out as a result of it. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, Richard, you know, there is a difference, and some people might think it's subtle, between decriminalisation and legalisation. You know, it, decriminalisation is more about not putting people through necessarily the court system and ending up perhaps with criminal records and, and in jail. The only thing is that when you are dealing with illegal drugs, as we are often told by the Garrity and others, you are dealing with a chain that goes all the way back to some very nasty people. Yeah, of course. I agree with Anna. I think 
you know, it has to be zero tolerance to the supply chain and, and anybody who's supplying. In terms of um, decriminalizing, if it's if you're looking at individuals who are using drugs for, I suppose, recreational use um, versus somebody who's suffering from addiction, um, we know that decriminalizing isn't going to, you know, our, our criminalizing people with addiction isn't an effective strategy, but then it has to become a health-led strategy. And the question is, are we are we able to are we able to support a health led strategy in this country at the moment when we when we're looking at um, where the country is um, in terms of its, its health care that it can provide? So um, we need to have a deterrent from people who are taking up drugs recreationally. Um, so I don't know if if now is the right time to be looking at a change until until we can have a I suppose a stronger strategy in place. And I suppose it is also easy for some people to assume who may never see the nasty end of this that, you know, if some people are doing cocaine at the weekends, whatever it is, I'm sure, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting it. It's, you know, it is recreational and sure, I'll be back at work on Monday and I'm, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And, and almost blanking the fact that, well, how did it end up here in the first place? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's and the health-led strategy point is a good one, isn't it? As well. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a massive problem. The heartache that's caused. I mean, I would argue that drugs are causing way more heartache and decimation in our communities than drink driving ever did. Not that I'm in favour of that, obviously. And we have a huge strategy around that. Um, you know, there is nowhere for the addicts to go. There, I mean, the centres are absolutely full to capacity. And nobody who ever takes cocaine or whatever it is for the first time thinks that they will end up on the streets and destroying family life. You know, I've got very good friends whose children, you know, some have died, some are on the streets. It's absolutely heartbreaking. You know, uh, if I'm going to smoke as a strategy, right, if I'm going to smoke, I'm only harming myself Mm. or whoever might be near it. Drugs ruin they really are causing untold damage for generations. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sorry, I've, we and, have and, to do something. And, and you know, somebody was making the point recently on the show, more generally about accommodation issues in Limerick mm-hmm. and housing and all of that, that everyone is much closer to homelessness than they realise, you know, regardless of drug addiction or not, because it's so difficult to find somewhere to stay if you end up, for example, yeah. out of your home for any reason. Yeah. You know, there are so many challenges around. So, you know, I obviously we have to look at laws on an ongoing basis, but I think policy is the problem here. They're like, this didn't happen yesterday. This has been coming down the line for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, we need serious policy to address it. Yeah, and, and interesting enough, Michael Finucane, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar summed it up by saying, well, maybe we could look at decriminalising having drugs, but be tougher on the criminalisation of those selling drugs. Yeah, well, that's a very valid point, and I think again, uh, you know, when we when I said it was the misuse of drug acts in the seventies, but you don't remember the type of drugs that were taken in the seventies. It was very rare in the past around that time, <laughs> anyway. And uh, I know that uh, it's probably tiny at this stage to look at it, but like uh, uh, we keep on hearing the whole time, and even the Gardaí would tell you that cocaine is rampant in every community, and I'm sure it's rampant uh, around the country at this stage, and it's creating all kinds of headaches and creating billionaires out of the likes of the Keenan gangs and all that. So I, I, I do think that um, Leo has a valid point when he says that.
Now, the thing that seemed to cause the most angst for many this week was the report that a US scientist has recommended having salt in your cup of tea. I mean, uh, but she is an expert. She's a professor, Professor uh, Michelle uh, Frankel. And uh, apparently she says it goes all the way back to the Chinese, that in ancient Chinese manuscripts, 8th century, for example, um, it, it's mentioned as an ingredient. Salt in your tea. I thought it, it was amazing to me how angry people got about this. How furious they were. Anna. I mean, seriously, whatever you want to put in your tea, have at it. You know, and we don't really need a scientist Sorry, telling Anna, us how what? to make tea. You can't put salt in your tea. <laughs> Try it. If you don't like it, don't have it again. Oh, What's the hullabaloo? No, the hullabaloo <laughs> is it's salt and you're putting it in your tea. Oh, Lord. Well, apparently she says you won't taste it, so I don't know. I haven't tried it, but you know. Well, I know Michael Finucane a long time and I would say there's no chance Michael Finucane will ever put salt in his tea. Am I right? I don't even put salt in my beef. <laughs> Not in my beef. <laughs> I suppose with health considerations and that. And no, I, but I, I think in fairness, actually, the, uh, the the lady who did this article, uh, she she said actually it goes back to Chinese times. But on top of that, she was saying that actually that if you put the salt into the tea, obviously it takes the bitterness out of the tea. And that's the point she yeah. was making. So yeah. obviously he wasn't using sugar as such, but... Like, it led to a bit of a storm in the UK and reminded them of the famous Boston Tea Party, which happened back in 1773, where, if you remember, the 300 chests full of tea were thrown into the harbour protest over British taxes. It was, that's right. A protest over British policy in another country. I find it very hard to believe that. No, Michael. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a a fact. Oh, yeah, it was. No, I remember the history of it, of course, the Boston Tea Party. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, there was enough salt in it then, if it, it ended up in the harbour. Um, what about you, Richard? But I mean, she, I, she, but she gives some other good recommendation, does she? said we should be using loose leaves instead of tea bags. And uh, in other words, we'd have a better a cup of tea as a result of it. Like, you know, I don't know how true that is, but uh, that's sort of another point. She, I think she was constructive in her comments, but it seemed they caused a bit of an issue uh, in the in the UK, particularly where they love their tea. They do, they do. They really love their tea. Now, Richard, if I was going into the Spit Jag or Brown's Brasserie, so like, I mean, what's the story? Will you be throwing salt in it or what? I don't, no, you wouldn't find that. I think... Um I think uh, if you asked a Chinese person 800 years ago that we'd be putting milk in our tea, I think they'd be as equally as shocked. But I don't think um, outside of places like Ireland and UK, people understand um, our our tea culture. It's it's very unique. You know, there's only a couple of real tea blends that we go with and the addition of sugar and milk um, makes it its, its, its own very unique thing. So maybe we should get that as a kind of a, a protective um, a protective beverage product like they do in France and other places. Well, I, we, we know a Sri Lankan family who are living in Limerick and they very kindly gave me tea. They went home to visit and, and brought back Sri Lankan tea and it was gorgeous and I was saying to them, ah, oh, jeepers, the Sri Lankan tea, is, it's, it's fabulous. And you know, they said a very interesting thing. Do you know, it ain't that great. And I said, what? I said, you just gave it to me. Said, it's not that great because we have to export all our good stuff. Okay. This isn't like France and wine. We have to export it economically. Yeah. So what we're left with, you think is lovely, which it was, but actually it's not the 
is not the premium. You know, it just shows what a big industry it was. And a listener saying, I looked in the cupboard yesterday when making the tea after hearing about this. I looked at the salt. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> tea is sacred. It's healing. You can't put salt in it. And, they, and people talking about... The other thing was, was sometimes about squirting lemon in the tea as well. Gives it, gives it a fresh zest. Listen, lads. Dead simple, right? Boil the bloomin' water, pour it in, stick in the tea bag, roll it around as strong as you like, and then if you're into your milk, put your milk in it and get on with it. Just struck me, it's a bit of a storm in a teacup, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is Anna's way of saying, move on, Joel. Yeah. You've got as much as you possibly can out of out of this. <laughs> which is which is probably true to be fair. Um now on a much more serious issue, uh, UL um um the UL Hospitals Group issued an apology to an elderly Limerick man and in, indeed we were talking to Councillor Connor Sheehan. It was his grandfather, uh, the man in question, eighty seven year old Jerry Mullins, uh, and he spent four nights in the emergency department of UHL and the hospitals group apologized for this. But as we know, um and as Connor Sheehan was acknowledging on the show, um we're not just talking about one person here. Uh, we know that there have been, you know, over a hundred at times in recent weeks on trolleys in various parts of the hospital and for lengthy periods as well. And uh, Michael, you know, as a former politician yourself and as a student of politics, it is part of the problem here that a lot of people listening to the show just don't believe anymore that it is resolvable. In fact, a lot of people just don't believe it's improvable. You know, when, when they're chatting about this around their table or in the pub, they kind of just don't believe it. And Joe, I can go back a long time ago when there was the old Midwestern health board, long before these uh, new health board systems were set up. And at that stage, actually, you wouldn't hear of um, trolleys or uh, inside the region as such, because at that time you had, uh, remember, you had accident emergency in Thurlis, you had Nina and you had Dennis. And even at that time, they were talking about reconfiguration a long time ago. And that reconfiguration has not worked out successfully because obviously it has failed to recognise the huge expanding population, in particularly in the Midwest region. But on top of that, from all areas, from uh, from North Tipperary and indeed from Clare, and they're all going into the same type of facility. Now, the uh, the question I would ask is: It's interesting uh, this gentleman spent from uh, Thursday afternoon till Monday night and he had an infected leg, and then he was transferred to Coom Orthopaedic Hospital. Now, I know they're under terrible pressure inside an accident emergency, but you'd imagine in an early stage, even within the first 24 hours, it would be identified he had a specific problem, and surely somebody could make the decision at that stage, we need to transfer him to Coom. Why did it have to wait that period of time? In other words, actually, to what degree of assessment is done inside an accident emergency and how early with regards to where the person mm. goes. For example, you have people turning up with injuries inside and there, and yet you have an excellent facility that is St. John's, uh, which caters for that s- section of people. And I think it's the process of identification, whether it can be streamed out into other areas in order to alleviate the numbers inside there. But it, 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 is, it is certainly a huge problem. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and the other thing is, you know, there's a fear factor um, as well. You know, people are afraid... To, to go in there and you, even when they need the help, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
I have young kids at home and um, they can be quite quick sometimes to recommend you going into A&E, but I would probably be sooner getting in the car and driving up to Galway or down to Cork before maybe attempting going into UL. I suppose it, we're getting numb to these stories. That's that's the worry, you know, and can, can it change? It absolutely can change. You know, my wife is Spanish. Um, Spain has one of the best healthcare systems I've ever seen. It's 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 an absolute pleasure. Um, and any time we have anything ongoing with the kids, we jump on a plane, we go to Spain, we get this resolved and we come back. Um, I do the same with any of... I had an ongoing back injury. I couldn't get seen here. I couldn't, even with health insurance, I'll jump on a plane, go over there, get it done. Um, so it it can be done and, and that's the pity. And I think it's, it's just us as a population, we've become accepting to it. And it's the one thing that is really lets us down as a country. We've, we've, we've had a lot of colleagues come in from, from abroad um, over the last few years on work permits, you know, and it's, they come to Ireland because of, what they hear of it being such a great country, but it's the one thing that they're shocked by is when they're when when they have to use the the hospital system. I, I have to wrap up, but very briefly, Anna. I I do think I think first thing we should do is talk to every person that works in the hospital, from the porters right up to the top. Get them anonymously to tell us what the problem is. We'll have the data within a couple of days. They know what the solution is. All right. Okay, okay. It's one we've talked about a lot and we will continue to talk about. Uh, we thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, Michael Finucane on the line and Anna Gibson Steele and Richard Gavin with me in the studio. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today. With-